This is David A. Romero, and the poem is That's Rap slash Ode to the Burrito from my third full-length poetry collection, My Name is Romero. Oh my God, I've got the greatest idea. We'll take the pride of your people, the most significant dish your culture has ever produced, and we'll turn it into a sandwich. No, a salad, not a hamburger. No, 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 I've got it. We'll throw it all on top of a doughy flour tortilla and just wrap it up. Oh, hell no. The seventh seal was broken. The seventh trumpet was sounded. And from the seas arose a dark and unholy beast. Its name featured on fast food menus and neon signs all over the country. The wrap. The focus group of foods you were assembled from the rotting carcasses of recipes killed by cultural appropriation. You are a Frankenstein, a monster. And for those travelers who journeyed throughout Mexico and the Southwest on burros who invented the burrito, the little donkey, you are truly an ass. Scraps of better foods whose quality was sacrificed at the unholy altar of on the go. You are simultaneously warm chicken and cool salad. You are lukewarm. I will spit you out and reject you as they reject us. Those who want to cash in on the popularity of the burrito but deny Spanish from the menu. Those who love Mexican food but hate Mexicans. And what have we given to the world? The burrito is a pillow for your mouth. It is a voluptuous breast, a full butt cheek, and only for those poor in spirit is there something threatening about its size. It is pollo, garnitas, carne asada, and not ground beef, with or without a side of beans and rice, guacamole, please, but no pinche sour cream. The burrito is quite simply an essay on humanity's struggle for greatness. Greatness achieved. A burrito is all the things that a rap is not. Ban raps forever. Burn all images that carry their name and likeness and effigy. And on that brave new day, you'll find me at Manuel's El Tepeyac in Boyle Heights, Los Angeles, eating a burrito as big as your head. The end. This is Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say, on the air. Tuning you into the Latino literary renaissance in all its splendor. Interviews, teatro, rap, fiction, poetry, memorias, composer spotlights, and more. Always más. You're listening to NP All Lit. Poetry, prose, and music from beginning to end. A Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say on 90.1 FM, KPFT, Houston. Thousands of fish killed after Pemex spill in El Rio Salado, and everyone runs out to buy more bottled water. Here in El Valle, the Rio Grande kills crossers as does the sun, like the heat of Arizona 
and the ranch lands around the Falfurias checkpoint. It's hard to imagine an endangered river with that much water, especially in summer and with the Falcon Reservoir in drought, though it only takes inches to drown. Sometimes further west, there's too little river to paddle in Boquillas Canyon, where there are no steel column walls, except the limestone canyons drop, and where a puma might push wade across, or in El Paso, where double-fenced walls sparkle and blind with bullfight ring lights, the ring the concrete river mold, and above a Juarez mountain urges, la Biblia es la verdad, leela. Today at the vigil, the native singers said we are all connected by water, la sangre de vida. Today, our vigil signs proclaimed, McAllen is not Murrieta, California. Hashtag, I am borderless. Derechos emigrantes son derechos humanos. Bienvenidos niños. We stand with refugee children. We are all human. Bienvenidos a los Estados Unidos. And the songs we sang, the copal that burned, and the rose petals spread in los cuatro puntos were for the children and women and men. Songs for the Guatemalan boy with an Elvis belt buckle and angry bird's jeans with zippers on back pockets who was found shirtless in La Jolla, one mile from the river. The worn jeans that helped identify his body in the news more times than a photo of him while alive. I never knew why the birds were angry. My mother said someone stole their eggs. The Tejas son took a boy I do not know, a young man who wanted to reach Chicago, his brother's number etched in his belt, his mother's pleas not to leave in white rosary beads he carried. The son in Tejas stopped a boy the river held, detention centers filled, churches offer showers and fresh clothes, Water and a covered porch may have waited at a stranger's house or in a patrol truck had his body not collapsed. Half of our bodies are made of water and we can't sponge rivers through skin and release them again like rain clouds. Today at the vigil, the native singers sang, we are all connected by water. This is David A. Romero. This is the poem, My Name is Romero, from my book, My Name is Romero. It happens every single night. Telemarketing Juliets calling from their ivy-covered balconies, calling for their star-crossed lovers, calling, hello, is Mr. Romeo in? I'm sorry. Romeo went to go grab a burrito, Mercutio to cruise Whittier Boulevard, and Shakespeare to take some ethnic studies classes. In other words, Romeo isn't in. My name is Romero. I am not Italian. Spanish blood coursing through these veins, though my parents are not from Spain. And despite the Southern Californian accent, the lads words like, dude, sweet and sick to tumble gracefully from these lips. I'm not a white guy. I'm a Mexican. My name is Romero. Romero like Archbishop Oscar Romero. Zombie filmmaker George A. Romero. Actor Cesar Romero. Yes. Before Jack Nicholson. Before Heath Ledger. A brown man plays the Joker. They dress him up in green wig, purple suit, and white face. 
Though he would not shave his trademark suave and sexy Latin mustache, no. He was a Romero. I am a Romero. My parents had dark skin and dark eyes. When I was seven, my brother lied, told me that my father was the mailman. How could you be the son of our parents with your blue eyes and white skin? Well, brother, like Jerry Springer or Maori, the DNA results are in. I am a Romero, and I know what some of you are thinking, that I'm just another white guy trying to prove he's a Latino, or just another Mexican chest-beating, beating his chest, beating whatever reputation he has left, trying to convince you that his family his country, his nationality are better than you. Well, I know as well as anyone that we are all the children of Africa, roots of no single family tree, but of a flourishing forest that grows majestically towards a magnificent destiny, shining, radiating beauty. Just please close your eyes and you can see it. But the name of this poem isn't We Are the World. We are children. No. The name of this poem is my name is Romero. Because if you're not proud of who you are, then where are you going to be proud of? And if you don't know where you come from, how are you supposed to know where you're going? And I know one thing, that the name of my father and my father's father and his father's father before him was Romero. This is from an anthology that is being put together by a librarian from the Valley Margie. My contribution is called Tell Me a Story. Dime un cuento. And it goes like this. Tell me a story. Dime un cuento. It can be a long story or it can be a short one too. It can be a brand new cuento or a favorite old one. You can tell me the story of how as a kid you used to play with canicas. Tell me the cuentos of those magical marbles made of glass that sparkled with every color of the rainbow when you held them up to the sun. Or you can tell me a scary story. You can tell me the cuento of how el chupacabras is lurking outside my window waiting to make me its next victim. You can tell me a happy story too. Like the cuento of how as a kid you like seeing grandma dance merengue songs with grandpa that they look so funny together. But just don't tell me a sad story. Because sad cuentos, they always make me cry. You can tell me a Christmas story. You can tell me the cuento of Santa's Mexican cousin who delivered presents to all the good little boys and girls that live along both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border. You can tell me a story of the heroes of La Lucha Libre, Papa. Tell me cuentos of these mass heroes and villains who wear masks and shiny capes. You can tell me a story about Mexico, Papa. You can fill my head with cuentos of its grand fiestas, colorful, colorful piñatas, beautiful music, and sweet-tasting paletas. Better yet, one night make the why not make the story be a bilingual cuento and tell it to me in both English and Spanish? Why not give me the best of both worlds? But just tell me a story, Papa. Dime un cuento. Tell it to me if I close my eyes and go to sleep. Tell me a story. Dime un cuento. Pierdo y quemo todo. 
You're listening to NP All Lit. Poetry, prose, and music from beginning to end. A nuestra palabra. Latino writers having their say on 90.1 FM, KPFT, Houston. This is David A. Romero with the poem Micro Machines from my book, My Name is Romero. Mexican kid with the white skin and blue eyes knows a lot about art. This brings a smile to the white face of the museum docent. She asked the boy how he knows so much. The boy replied, my uncle is an artist. The boy says this without a hint of cynicism or derision. This, to him, is the greatest thing a person can be an artist. The docent asked the boy, what's his name? Frank Romero. What does your uncle paint? Cars. He paints old cars. American cars from the 1920s through 50s. LA. Palm trees. Freeways. And familiar streets as the background. Always bold in color with a zigzag impasto stroke. The type of thing you see that immediately makes you say, that's a Romero. The boy suggests to the docent, maybe he has something here. A pause from her, then. There's an auto museum down the street. Maybe he has something there. No, that doesn't seem right. Maybe what you mean is he paints cars. There's a dusty wood and tin garage under this museum, and the docent has put his uncle into it. They call this aggression. But really, it's so easy as she does it. But his uncle doesn't look the same there. His uncle, with bold, striped sweaters, full wild hair and beard, laughs big enough to fill a room larger than life personality, looks very different in the docent's garage. To her, his uncle is a tiny uncle with a shaved head. Brown Pendleton and Dickies, navy work apron, and silver paint spray can in hand. He paints with that in place of a brush. The cars in the garage are smaller, too. They're micro-machines. And like them, the boy feels small and getting smaller. His hopes, his pride, all of the world and its colors shrinking to a vanishing point. Because he knows what she means. I know what she meant. I couldn't expand upon these ideas fast enough. There is nothing wrong with painting cars, painting pictures of cars, or dressing like a cholo, but we are not all the same. You can't paint us all with the same brush, fit us all into the same strokes. Whatever the medium, there is nothing wrong with taking pride in your work. But what is wrong is for anyone to assume that we are a smaller people, a lesser people. It is wrong to assume that any one of us can't be acclaimed, can't hang in your museum. Give him the top floor because my uncle is an artist, a painter. His work has hung in galleries the world over. You can find him in the Smithsonian, see his mural in L.A. by the 101, and yes, he, like me, is a Mexican. My uncle is an artist, a painter, who's been paid to paint cars that were literally bigger than the Mona Lisa. My uncle is an artist, 
a painter, and like me, he knows how to use the principle of diminution, which is making objects smaller in a piece of art to help create a sense of perspective. My uncle is an artist, a painter, and he doesn't get paid to talk about paintings. He gets paid to paint them with checks bigger than your desperate attempt to try and reframe him. And I won't let any of you make me feel small about any of us ever again. And Bettis, Texas Poet Laureate 2020. This is a sonnet from a collection of poems called Cajas with Zero Tolerance. And it begins with a quote, quoting the former Attorney General Jeff Sessions, quote, they are the ones who broke the law. They are the ones who endangered their own children on their trek. The United States, on the other hand, goes to extraordinary lengths to protect them while the parents go through a short detention period, end quote. They are the ones who told their children were taken to bathe and not returned. They are the ones whose nursing babies and toddlers were forced to wean and left in wet diapers. And their other young ones also cried for mommy, for papa, for tia, for... And were told they were an orchestra without a conductor. And enough in this country elected the conductor with his fist in the air, without music, without ocean, without moon, without the very earth. He was the one, and she another, and he yet another, who said they'd be taking her child the next day and said, quote, happy Mother's Day. This is Gorilla Arms from My Name is Romero. It was Sunday morning. My father had just gotten off work. Overtime ship, family room, pink box of donuts. My father's blue work shirt that put them on the table. Exhausted but happy. Spending time with the family, his arms on the table, muscular, sweaty, heavy, hairy arms. A bratty, snotty-nosed child, I looked across the table and told him, You look like a gorilla. It wasn't just the words. It was the cock of the head, the wrinkling of the nose, the arch of the eyebrow. It wasn't just the words. It was the sneer tucked inside of them. You look like a gorilla. Who was this stranger who lived in my house, spent hours tinkering in the garage or lumbering out in the yard, Yelled to rake up the leaves, pick up the dog poop, mow the lawn, left before I went to school, left in the middle of the night, sometimes returned the same, always wearing that blue or orange uniform, always tired, on those days, prone to anger. Big, heavy work boots clunking and clomping throughout the house. Sometimes he was covered in dirt, his hair uncombed and wild. Work shirt unbuttoned, chest hair out, hairy arms like gorilla sleeves. Who was this stranger? He was my dad, my father. You look like a gorilla. 
it wasn't just the words, it was the inflection. It was my reflection. It was the teachers, the guest lecturers, the people on television, the parents of my friends. No one had ever told me that I should want to be like my father. Blue collar, work with your hands, muscular, sweaty, heavy, hairy arm, fields and embankments every day for us. You look like a gorilla. There was hate there, disgust there, dehumanization, like how creationists can find nothing more filthy than to say that humans are descended from monkeys, chimpanzees, like how racists call Mexicans cockroaches, cackle when they hear la cucaracha. The Nazis called the Jews rats. Blacks were depicted for decades as more ape than homo sapien. My brother commented on how they used him at work. They treat me like their workhorse, a beast of burden. This was his first admission. This was racism. They treated him like a Mexican, and he hated it. My father was as stubborn as a bull, as strong as an ox, muscular, sweaty, heavy, hairy arms, gorilla arms, the arms that built our house, the arms that hugged my mother, that carried me as a child. I looked at those arms that Sunday morning and told him, you look like a gorilla. Everything stopped. Everyone was shocked. Soon there was shouting, screaming. I ran, crying, out of the house and into the backyard. You look like a gorilla. I will regret seeing that for the rest of my life. This poem is open letter to Donald Trump. Dear Donald Trump, in 2015, you announced your candidacy for president of the United States. In front of American flags, podium bearing your name, a platform of hate. Talk about making America great. For who? It wasn't for us. Latinx America. You called us criminals, drug dealers, and rapists. A nameless wave of people coming from Mexico and South America. Donald Trump, do you know anything heard of Central America? Thought to throw in a statistic like 7% of immigrants come to America from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras with saying the places we come from, the most basic of differences have alienated your supporters? Yes, the suburban racists, the hardcore hicks. To them, it's too much to say Latinx, Hispanic, or indigenous. To them, we're all Mexicans or we're all spicks. Donald Trump, you call us criminals. Maybe you forgot how the United States stole half of Mexico, how NASA stole much of what was left. Maybe you forgot about the theft of the lives of Torrios, Allende, and our friends. Maybe you forgot about the bombing of Panama and the United Fruit Company. You call us drug dealers, Trump. Maybe you forgot about Oliver North and his testimony about Iran-Contra forgot about the CIA's dealings in Nicaragua, about how they used freeway Rick Ross to flood crack cocaine 
came into the ghetto. You call us rapists, Trump. Are you speaking for the women of Juarez, for the victims of American sex tourism? Do you deny that when she dared to question you, you said that Megyn Kelly must have been bleeding out of her you-know-what? Do you deny that you frequently made comments about wanting to have sex with your own daughter? Do you deny that you continually call women, all women, and not just Rosie O'Donnell, pigs? Some say you're a joke, Trump, but when you use a platform of hate to become the president of the United States, I'm not laughing because you've made it clear that there is a seething mass in the heart of this country that is deeply racist, xenophobic, Islamophobic, queerphobic, misogynistic. You're no sideshow, Trump. You're the main stage, the old racism, the mean racism back in town. We need to fight you now or we may never get another chance. Some say you're a joke, Trump. But when you use a platform of hate to become the president of the United States, I'm not laughing because I know that when you say that we are criminals, drug dealers, and rapists, you mean business, and so do I. Donald Trump, you are fired. Donald Trump, you should have stayed bankrupt, should have had your ties stapled to the sewing machines and the sweatshop factories you produce your clothes in, should have had your casinos and tower collapse on top of your head. You should have suffered a stroke in your canning bin and let the ultraviolet light slowly work its magic. Donald Trump, you should have had your hair caught in a freak accident and been swung around by it like a troll doll. Because Latinx America is the future America. People of color America is the future America. And we don't take kindly to being called criminals, drug dealers, or rapists. We're the best of the best. The majority shareholders in 2044 or earlier, Donald Trump, you had better hope it isn't a hostile takeover. Terra, que vai passar com o ar, com a nossa comida, plástico para almoçar, que vai passar com a noite, escura lenta solidão, com a nossa Amazônia, que está em perigo de extinção, que vai passar com o sol, que vai passar com o rio. Com a nossa vida, se a nossa água está poluída Que vai passar com a lua, quando não puder fazer luar As minhas pessoas escravizadas cada dia a trabalhar E o amor, e o amor, e o amor é Entre ser humano, viver sem nenhuma dor E o amor, e o amor, e o amor é entre todos nós Mamazônia 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 Que vai passar com a terra Que vai passar com o ar E com a nossa comida Plástico para almoçar Mamazônia Que vai passar com a noite Escura, lenta, solidão 
com a nossa Amazônia Que está em perigo de extinção Amazônia Que vai passar com a lua Quando não puder fazer luar Amazônia. As minhas pessoas escravizadas cada dia a trabalhar E o amor, e o amor, e o amor é Amazônia. Entre ser humano, viver sem nenhuma dor E o amor, e o amor, e o amor é entre todos nós Javier Garza, and I am here today to share a story, a short story with you guys. This is my book, The Donkey Lady Fights La Llorona and Other Cuentos, and this is the title story, and it goes something like this. Margarito, Maya, Luis, and Miguel listen to their grandpa Ventura tell them not just one, but two scary stories. But these are not just any scary stories. Oh, no. They are the two scariest stories that he knows. The story of La Llorona, he says, is the story of a woman that comes out late at night looking for children that are out away from their homes when they shouldn't be. It is said that she lurks wherever there is water. And if she sees a child outside late at night when they shouldn't be, she will pounce upon them. And by the time they see her, it's too late. They will see those glowing red eyes that burn, they're, like they're on fire, and that hair that waves around her as if they were snakes. They say that any child that sees, that lays eyes on La Llorona, is never seen again. That's so scary, says, says uh, you know, says uh, uh, Maya. Yes, that's a very scary story, says Lupe. And he goes, did that really happen? Asked Margarito, who doesn't always believe his grandfather's stories. If you were to believe every story that grandpa tells, then he's done battle with every monster, every cuckoo you could imagine. Of course it happened, says grandpa. Why would I lie? But as scary as La Llorona is, there are those who claim she is not the scariest cuckoo of them all. Who could possibly be scarier than La Llorona, Maya? There are those who claim that the donkey lady is even scarier. The donkey who? Asked Miguel. The donkey lady, said Grandpa Ventura. The donkey lady, they say, is a bruja, a witch, who at night turns her head into that of a hideous donkey. It is said that she will hide under bridges where there is running water. 
and she will wait there for a kid, any child that is out late at night when they shouldn't be. And as they are crossing over this bridge, she will pounce upon them, grabbing them, dragging them down to under the bridge, never to be seen again. The last thing they will hear is her cries of hee-haw, hee-haw. That's so scary, says Maya. Yes, there are both very scary stories, says Grandpa Ventura, but they are just stories. But it's getting late, and you all should be getting home. And Grandpa Ventura gets up using his cane. Now, Grandpa Ventura is very getting pretty old. He's getting up there in, in years, and, you know, Margarito notices that he's having a little trouble standing up and says, Grandpa, don't worry, you don't have to walk us home. I can make sure all these kids get home. I don't know, Margarito. That's a lot of responsibility for a little boy. Grandpa, I'm 11. I'm practically a grown-up. Okay, says Grandpa Ventura. You go ahead and make sure everybody gets home. But you make sure that after that, you go home too. Yes, says Margarito. So they start walking home. Now, first they get to Miguel's house. They get this the closest. If you stand at Grandpa's front porch, if you look out, you can actually see Miguel's house. Miguel is about to go inside his house when suddenly he gets a big smile on his face. He gets an idea. He turns around and he looks at, 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 at Luis and Maya and Margarito and says, Hey, guys, don't let La Llorona get you. And he even goes, Ay, mis hijos, oh, my children, and then runs inside laughing. He thinks it's so funny. Now it is just Luis, Margarito, and Maya that are left. So they keep walking. So finally, they get to Luis's house. He lives the second closest to Grandpa's house. Now, Luis is about to go in when he turns around, big grin on his face. He's, gonna, he's got an idea, too, and he tells, hey, Margarito and Maya, don't let the donkey lady get you. And he even starts going, hee-haw, hee-haw, like a donkey would. Then he runs inside laughing because he thinks it's funny. Now it's just Margarito and Maya that are left. And as they're walking home, it's starting to get dark. Now, Maya is starting to get scared. And when Maya gets scared, Maya talks. That's so, talks. That's the way she deals with things. And when she is very scared, she talks a lot. And Maya is very, very scared. And she starts saying, oh, I don't know why I listen to Grandpa's story. They always scare me. They're, you know, they're scary. They're, they, they have monsters. They have cuckoos. But I love to listen to his stories. That's why I want to hear them. But then I don't want to hear them because then I can't go to sleep at night. And she keeps going on and on and on and on until Margarito just can't take it and tells her to be quiet. Only a baby would be scared of La Llorona, he says. Now, Maya doesn't like being told that she's a baby especially when Margarito's only half a year older than she is. Now, Maya, <clears throat> when Maya gets mad, Maya doesn't talk. She doesn't say a word. She just keeps it all inside. But if, while she's keeping it inside, it's growing bigger and bigger till she is ready to let Margarito have it when they get to her house. She says, turning around to give Margarito the meanest look that she has in her and says, I am so mad at you right now, Margarito, for calling me a baby that I would be so happy if La Llorona and the donkey lady both got you. So I never, ever, ever had to see your ugly, ugly face ever, ever, ever again. 
and she slams the door. And Margarito starts to think, man, I shouldn't have been so mean to her. But it's okay. Tomorrow after school, I'll buy her a bag of potato chips, and I'll buy her that soda she likes, the red one that stains your teeth all red. She'll forgive me. So Margarito keeps walking. Till he gets to the bridge, the bridge he has to cross to get to his house on the other side. Now, as Margarito is walking across the bridge, he sees somebody else walking towards him from the other end. At first, he says, I, I think it's my mom. She's mad because I haven't gotten home yet and it's already dark. But the closer the figure gets, the more he notices that the, that the person that is walking towards him is not walking towards him, actually. It's floating towards him. And that's when he sees those red eyes, those red eyes that burn like they're on fire, and that hair that swirls around her as if they were snakes. La Llorona, he cries out, and then looks around looking for a place to hide, but there is nowhere for him to hide. So he runs to the, back to the other end of the bridge and hides in the only place that he can, which is under the bridge. He can hear La Llorona saying, where are you, mijo? Come to your mama. And Margarito's under the bridge hiding, saying, uh-uh, that's not my mama. I'm not going to fall for it. But then he sees something floating towards him, something that draw that gets closer and closer and closer till he sees looking up at him from the water to glowing yellow eyes and then out from underneath the water leaps out a hideous woman with a donkey's head and it cries out, hee-haw, it's the donkey lady. And Margarita tries to run away from her, but she's chasing, pulling at the back of his shirt, going round and round in circles. Margarito has no choice. He has to get away from the donkey lady. And the only place he has left to run is is out from under the bridge and waiting for him is La Llorona. And she says, aha, there you are. And she grabs him by the back of his shirt and starts to pull him up into the sky. But then the donkey lady leaps out from underneath the bridge and grabs him by the ankle and says, he's mine, and pulls him back down. La Llorona says, uh-uh. I saw him first, and she pulls on the shirt collar. The donkey lady says, no, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. And she pulls the meat back down, and they pull, and they tug. They pull, and they tug. Poor Margarito, he's like a rope in a tug of war. And then his shirt collar rips at the same time that the donkey lady pulls off his shoe. Margarito falls down to the ground hard, dazed. He looks up, and then he sees on one side is La Llorona. On the other side is the donkey lady. And they are going to fight over him. Now. Margarito had always dreamt of having two girls fighting over him, but not this girls. And that's when it happened. The Llorona walked right up to the donkey lady and screamed right at her face. She went, ay, mis hijos. Now, donkey lady did not like that. So she walked right up to, back up to the Llorona and yelled right at her face going, he Ah, Yorona's not used to having anybody disrespect her like that. So she pushes the donkey lady down to the ground. 
donkey lady's not going to take that. So she jumps right up from the, from up the, from the ground and she pushes La Llorona back. And that's when the donkey lady makes her move. She grabs La Llorona by her wild hair that moves like snakes. And then the donkey lady does the unthinkable. She tries to pull La Llorona under the bridge. But the Yorona's not going to go down without a fight. So she grabs the donkey lady by her long donkey ears. And then she tries to pull the donkey lady up into the sky. And they pull and they tug. They pull and they tug. They go round and round till both ladies go over the bridge and fall down to the water below. Splash. Even in the water, they refuse to stop fighting. Pulling and tugging, pulling and tugging, round and round, splish, splash. Margarito, for his part, he takes off running. Even without a shoe on, he had never run so fast in his life. If the coach had seen him, he would have signed him up for the track team. Margarito ran across that bridge. He ran straight up to his house. He ran straight into his room where he got under the covers, pulled a blanket over his head and kept saying, La Llorona, the donkey lady, La Llorona, and the donkey lady over and over and over again till he finally fell asleep. And that's the story of the donkey lady fights La Llorona. Tantan. This is Andrew Trudell Vasquez reading the poem Binaries. One, niece colors at bond or table, smiles, looks at her brother drawing Batman and Robin, good guys, bad guys. She smiles to say, look at me, look at us, I am coloring. Black curl size, frozen juice cans jostle when her chubby arms scribble red and yellow. Her brother called her Chuck. Her real name is Raven, my younger sister's daughter. Before she was born, her dad dreamed her tall with good hair, strands more Mexican than Puerto Rican, straight and fine, black silk, her mother's long tresses. My nephew's hair shows his African roots like his father's, Henry and Raven, Hank and Chuck. Green eyes jewel both their faces. We dine at Cafe Con Leche. People who could be distant cousins scurry, bring pancakes, ate, bacon, coffee, and sweets. We hear the origins of Chuck. Batman Frank Robin to save the day, called him his little Chuckamucka before he made him normal size. Justice prevailed in less than a half hour. My nephew loves bears to packers, bulls to bucks, policemen and firemen who saved the day. Once on the playground he shared on the monkey bars, he wanted to be a policeman. I said, we can talk about that later. He said, Grandma doesn't like them either. He knows. He is six. Binary columns work for his brain right now. I think about his light afro, how many men with his hair texture spend birthdays behind bars, rock and holes, shake hands with a death penalty, swung from trees like strange fruit for entertainment. He will know this later. I push him on the swing, instruct him to go higher, pump your legs, keep your knees pressed together, lean back, use your core strength to the mood and back. Playground people stare and chuckle. I watch them finish color, Batman and Robin across the table. Black and white crayons melt in his caramel hands. Mad Flowers. There was a house on the other side of our block. Ahí viven las manfloras. 
my mom would say, the disgust in her voice palpable. Si algún día te ofrecen comida, no la tomes. Whenever we had to walk by, she would grasp onto my hand even tighter and hurry me along. The house didn't really look any different from others on the block. It was white brick with a forest green trim, and there was a gray pebble walkway down the middle of the yard that led to the door. There was always so much noise and movement at our house. I liked riding my bike out of there, pedaling down our driveway and taking the sidewalk away from everyone. My mom wouldn't mind if I was gone unless I was gone too long. Once I was really going, I'd count the thin lines that separated the sidewalk into neat squares, feeling each bump under my tires. Las manfloras. I was pretty sure I knew what it meant. Women who were like men, who lived together like lovers. I liked the word manflowers better. I'd say it in my head and think about the word, imagining what type of plant manflowers would be if they really existed. Following the curb of the sidewalk, I'd ride faster, picking up speed until I was close, and then I'd glide past their house. There was a gnarled wild blackberry tree in the yard, and at the base of it, a growth of succulents that were always freshly watered. Moras. The blackberries were called moras, and my parents thought they were a nuisance. My dad would say they were too bitter to eat, and complain how in the summer, the moras would hang fat and heavy until they stained the sidewalk because our neighbor Chewy was too lazy to look after his trees. My friend Rosie lived on that side of the block, and when I'd go over, her mom would let us ride our bikes anywhere on the street. We liked the moras. When we'd get to the manflower's house, we'd slow down and walk our bikes up their driveway. There would be purple stains all over the sidewalk and front yard, and we'd gather the plumpest ones and pile them in our bike baskets for pretend dog food. We'd eat them instead, laughing and squeezing as we plunged them into our mouths, the juice sanguine and bitter. Sitting crouched, I'd look up and notice, notice Rosie's smiling face. It was spotted with moving shadows from leaves that in flashes blocked the sunlight. It wasn't until after I became a single mother that I learned about queer brown love, how it was the truest, like wrapping your arms around your very own skin in another body. The scent of body lotion unfamiliar. It was the first woman I loved who gently said, I think you have postpartum depression, sweetheart. No one else had noticed. My daughter was almost two. Anna. She'd stop by on Saturday mornings with groceries. You didn't have to, I'd say, but she knew we were probably a little hungry. I'd boil sweet potatoes as Belen sat and tapped plastic measuring cups against the kitchen tile. I'm on my way to see Cat Eyes. We met out dancing. I remember noticing her joy, how evident it was as she moved to the Gumbia as the live band was playing. Nervously, I had a couple of shots of tequila before catching her eye and holding my arm out, asking her to dance. I'd never had that feeling of a woman's body 
and her moving near me, the perfume off her shoulders and my pure joy in being. I was wearing a pair of cowboy boots and even then had never been so graceful. Can I tell you something about cat eyes? I later found out she supported herself and her babies on her own, working part-time and taking on all the duties of a full-time nursing student. She only had one night, Saturday, off from her kids every two weeks. Even if she was completely spent, she made it a point to go dancing. The rest of her every days, she was up by 5 a.m. It's actually my birthday, and I'm parked outside her apartment. She has two hours before she has to pick up her kids. I hadn't planned on doing anything for it, but when I'd mentioned it to her, she insisted on making lunch. Once inside, I sat at her kitchen table and watched her make salsa. She was roasting chiles and chopping onions next to a large granite molcajete. I feel special, I said, our eyes meeting. You are, Reina, she responded. Her apartment had plants everywhere, succulents and tiny repotted aloes arranged, lining every counter. I got up and leaned towards her, our arms wrapped around another, tightly like vines, violet mouths kissing. Cada Mañana en San Benito, Texas by Lupe Mendes from Why I Am Like Tequila. And I know a spot right over that hill, Hank Williams Sr., 1951. Tia Maria's shotgun house hides in between years of cherry blossom limbs and buckshots of leaves that settle on the roof, on the stepping stones, on the porch, flakes along the grass. I am here to collect summer, aguacates, the fresh cheeks of strawberries, and consejos the size of dollar bills. I come here every summer to this hot house, to the white, tiny leaves that blind me to old poverty, to the locust winds outside, to the smell of brewing sanca and canela. I come here to finesse my 13-year-old words against the ears of Olivia or Amelda, Carmen or Monica. One of them will take a walk with me. Remind me to walk under the blossoms at night. The stars are much larger to talk about, and under the blossoms, nothing else matters. I live in the past, watching my mother fighting in the streets, a challenge of who can fit the most fresas in their mouth. A strawberry runs down a smile. I sleep on a bed frame, a family tree now, a witness to each birth in this family, Everyone sleeps here. When they are young, the radios play tunes, older than me. Every morning, a shot rings out. I can hear Tia Maria belting a song. Her voice blasts on the porch swing, an alarm that will echo in me, a high pitch for the rest of my life. A nasal cry, a fuzzy radiola memory stirs. Hey, good looking. What you got cooking? How's about cooking something up with me? Mis locos 
Chapa, <laughs>